You're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. As doctors, are there new and better ways to help our patients and ourselves to manage stress? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Laura Humphrey, and with me today is Dr. Bruce Wilson. Dr. Wilson is president of Wilson Heart Care Associates and clinical associate professor at the Medical College of Wisconsin. He also opened and directed the University of Pittsburgh's Heart Institute and was the past director of the Cardiac Care Service at the University of Minnesota Hospitals. Dr. Wilson is medical director of HeartMath, Inc., an evidence-based treatment program for cardiac rehabilitation and stress management. Welcome, Dr. Wilson. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. Today we're discussing stress and the body. What is stress? I think we all look at stress a little bit differently. We very often feel that stress is an external stimulus of some sort. The traffic jam that you're in, the argument with your teenage daughter, the budget, staffing needs of your business. But in fact, all those things are just external and they will always be there. So the heart math people try to reframe this and say, how about if we look at stress as our response to any of those things? Because the human stress response has been built into us for many years. Could you describe the specifics of the human stress response? Again, I think it's important to realize where this stress button, if you will, came from. A couple of hundred thousand years ago when we were walking around on the planet with saber-toothed tigers, it was important for us to have a physiologic switch inside of us that would enhance our chances for survival. So if you're walking through the jungle and a tiger comes around the corner, you better have something in there that would help you get away from that tiger. So one of the first elements of the stress response in your autonomic nervous system is the release of adrenaline, which will allow you to run faster and jump higher and hopefully get away from the tiger. And while we've talked for many years about this sympathetic fight-or-flight nervous system response that floods the system with adrenaline and brings more blood flow to our muscles so that we can get away, that's only the beginning of the stress response. And we know now that there are more than 1,400 biochemical reactions within this response. So give us kind of an overview of some of those biochemical responses. Well, I think that's really where it gets interesting because some of the research from the Institute of Heart Math in California and now many laboratories around the world have started to show us that not only do we have this immediate response in our autonomic nervous system, and these changes occur literally in milliseconds, but there's a neurohormonal response that actually takes a few seconds or minutes to get going, and these changes stay with us for a while. Now, why is that? Well, you can imagine that we need to have a system built into us in case the tiger catches us but doesn't kill us. So let's just take the rather scary concept that the tiger has bitten your leg off and you have survived it. Maybe your fellow tribesmen have speared the tiger and dragged it back to the village. You're lying there with one leg and bleeding. One of the first responses and certainly one of the big responses that occurs is another adrenal cortical hormone called cortisol, sort of known in the lay press as the mother of all stress hormones. Cortisol comes into our system and that's a good thing if a tiger just bit your leg off. But I take it that there's a different effect when it's longer term. Exactly right. You know, we as a human species were not actually built to be bathing in cortisol for a long time. So that while cortisol will raise blood sugar, and that's good if a tiger bit you, and cortisol will raise blood pressure both independently and through the renin-angiotensin cascade as well, having higher blood pressure isn't so good for us either on a chronic basis. So when we bathe in some of these chemicals, cortisol being a big one, we constantly have higher sugar and constantly have higher blood pressure. And we all know very well that what leads to heart disease, the number one killer in this country and most other countries, is high blood sugar, high blood pressure, obesity. All these things are part and parcel of coronary artery disease and other heart disease like congestive heart failure. And now that we understand the stress response, we can see that it is a very integral 
sort of a step in the progression to these diseases which are now killing us. So the bottom line is that our survival response is killing us. And how is it that the heart itself registers and responds to stress? Well, that's interesting because we have always viewed the brain as the sort of master control mm -hmm. center and the rest of the organs in our body are always responding to signals from the brain. Interestingly enough, research at the Institute of HeartMath found a number of years ago some very interesting things about heart-brain interaction. I think I'd like to start by just giving you a couple of facts that have no necessary meaning to them, but we can build a case for a rather inverted way that our system is working compared to how we all learned it, whether we learned it in eighth grade or medical school. So the first thing to observe is the fact that the electrical amplitude of the ECG signal, the electromagnetic waveform that we thought was just causing our hearts to contract in the proper synchrony to maximize our cardiac output, that electrical signal is about 50 to 60 times the electrical amplitude of our EEG signal. That's a little bit backwards for most of us because if the brain's in control of everything, what are we doing being wired with a signal generator that's 50 times as powerful if all it's doing is coordinating our heart activity? This is certainly a lot more electrical amplitude than we need to depolarize 300 grams of cardiac muscle. So the question then comes, what else is it telling the system? Now, along those lines, it's interesting to note that with the EKG machine being 104 years old this year, we can measure that heart signal eight or 10 feet outside your body. If we shield you from the ambient electricity in a room, if we put you in a copper box or a lead box, we can find your heartbeat eight or 10 feet outside your body. So that also would cause us to stop and pause and say, wait a minute, what information is contained in that signal? Because that's far more than we need to simply cause our heart to contract. So the heart simply as a pump suddenly is in question here. Point number two, it turns out that there is more afferent information, in other words, more information going from heart up to brain than information going from brain to heart. That doesn't make sense if the brain controls everything. So that's another point to make us ponder what's going on here. And then perhaps most alarming to most of us, work in Montreal from Dr. Drew Armour has showed us that the human heart has about 40,000 neurons in it that we were never told about because we never knew to look. So you're saying the heart has a brain? I am saying exactly that. When you look, you will find, this is true in mammalian hearts across species, but this started in dogs and it was true in pigs. And lo and behold, Dr. Armour started doing biopsies of hearts at autopsy and found that these neurons and ganglia and plexi are present within the heart. And the question would be, okay, if the heart has 40,000 neurons, and not only neurons sending information A between X and Y, but if there are ganglia, there's actually local processing going on there. So if there's local processing going on in these neurons and sending afferent information up to the brain, what's actually going on here? And this is all fascinating research that's come out in the last 10 or 15 years. So the question would be, are we actually sure that the brain is in control of everything? And is the heart just a pump? So what are the hypotheses about why this is so? What is the purpose and function of this kind of a strong, strong signal that is way outside the body, 8 to 10 feet from the body, you said? Now we have to turn to another technology to start to answer those questions. After experimenting with many pieces of biomedical equipment back in the early 90s, the people at the Institute for Heart Math tripped on the fact that a technology called heart rate variability allows us to look into this heart-brain or heart-autonomic nervous system interaction. It turns out that the heart rate variability machine is on every OB 
unit, it is the fetal monitor. So the technology called heart rate variability, sometimes we call that just HRV because it has fewer syllables, but the heart rate variability technology is in the fetal monitor. And it turns out that that heart signal, which I will remind everybody, is about 50 times as powerful as the brain signal and can be measured up to 10 feet outside the body. When we look at that signal with heart rate variability, not just with the EKG machine, we see that there are only two patterns of heart rate variability in the adult heart. In other words, the heart can only sing two songs into our hard drive, if you will. Now, the stress button, when it is pushed, evokes the stress song out of the heart. I'm being very simplistic here, but without being able to visually show you the patterns, I have to describe it thusly. And that stress button, which if I put a Holter monitor on any of us and looked at you all day long, we would see that that stress signal coming out of that powerful generator, the heart, looks very jagged. It's very herky-jerky. If you look at it, it looks a little bit like a level five earthquake on the Richter scale. On the other hand, when we're deeply asleep in stage four sleep, for example, we see a very different pattern of how our heart rate is varying. We see a pattern that looks like a sine wave. Now, if you look at that pattern, it's going up, it's coming down, it's going up, it's coming down within a certain range while you're deeply asleep. The physicists who do waveform analysis would tell us that that very regular pattern possesses the characteristic that they call coherence. So while we as physicians are accustomed to describing coherence as a characteristic of someone who stumbles into the emergency room and that guy's very incoherent, go down the list of diagnoses, he's toxic, he has a brain tumor, he's infected, he has mental illness, what's wrong with this guy? Coherence now means in physics orderliness within a pattern. And coherence also means in physics terms synchronization between multiple systems. So let's get back to the pattern now. When we see a coherence coherent pattern emanating from our most powerful signal generator, our heart, that has a number of physiologic consequences that are very different from an incoherent or chaotic pattern when we're stressed. Now, one more thing. We not only see that coherent pattern coming from our dominant signal generator when we're asleep, but we see it when we are in the zone, when everything's clicking just right, when everything's just humming along very efficiently. So that would really trigger us to say, well, what are the consequences of this very powerful signal when it's chaotic or when it's coherent? What came next was a very important observation. We all learned that there is a nerve connection from the heart up to the brain, and the vagus nerve carries traffic up there, and a few other fibers carry traffic up there, but we were all taught that it stopped in the brainstem, and that the response from the brain was to alter your blood pressure or your heart rate or your respiratory rate. But in fact, these very powerful signals are going up the spinal cord, they're going up the vagus nerve, and they enter and not only affect the brainstem, where your survival functions are mitigated, but they have a powerful effect on your emotional centers in your limbic system or midbrain structures, and they have a very powerful effect on cortical function, which is where we do our executive function, where we learn physics and Spanish and manage families and budgets and can predict what might happen by our past experiences. All of that executive function is powerfully influenced by this very strong heart signal. I want to thank Dr. Bruce Will who's been our guest today, and we've been discussing stress on the heart and the brain. I'm Dr. Laura Humphrey, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.